to set us up, I'm going to kind of do a recount really quick of where we've gotten so far in the book of Acts. So it starts off, Jesus is telling his, his boys, right, like I'm going back up to heaven where I came from, but it's time for the spirit to come down. And that happens at Pentecost. Peter preaches, amazing sermon, thousands get saved, Holy Spirit falls. The church is primarily a Jewish church right now in Jerusalem. Okay, so the church is growing, the church is growing the apostles are performing miracles, amazing things are happening. And then you have a guy named Stephen in chapter 6, one of the, um, the deacons, if you will, of the early church. And he starts preaching, also performing signs and wonders. And the, the, the Jewish, uh, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and, and the council, they're, they're getting kind of fed up with these Christians. Like, what are you talking about? Jesus, you're preaching and these signs and wonders. And, and, and Stephen actually just calls these guys out. He's like, you're hypocrites. God is, is after you. Um, you need to repent. And they end up killing him. The first Christian martyr of the church, he's killed. Persecution breaks out. The church scatters from Jerusalem. They go north. They go northwest. They go northeast. They, psh, they, start, they disperse, right? And as they disperse, right, in, um, in Antioch, okay, I'm kind of summarizing, skipping some stuff here, but in Antioch, you have... Some of the Jewish Christians who went there, Antioch is like in modern day Syria, thereabouts, right? So you have, they're preaching to the Jews about Jesus and the resurrection in Antioch, but then somebody's like, hey, what about the Gentiles, right? Because just previously, Peter was told by God to also go and preach to a Roman centurion, a Gentile. This is the first time that God's message, the oracles of God, were being intentionally spread to Gentiles. It's kind of blowing the church's mind, right, in Jerusalem. Like, Peter is coming back. He's saying the Roman centurion just got saved, and his family, and his servants. And then to Antioch, the, the Jewish church starts preaching to the Gentiles there. And then they, they, they get reports of that, and they're like, what is going on? This is crazy. So they have a guy named Barnabas, means son of encouragement. He's like a pillar in the early church, great guy. They say, Barnabas, go out to Antioch, check out what's going on, and bring us a report. So he goes, and he stays. He's ministering. The church is exploding in Antioch. Jews, Gentiles, it's amazing. And he says, I need help. And he was instrumental earlier in, in Saul's conversion, if you remember Saul, on the road to Damascus, a, a Jewish Pharisee after to go imprison um, Christians. He, he waved his thumbs up in approval at Stephen's death. He was on a way to continue his mission to persecute Christians when Jesus shows up and is like, boom, and knocks him off his horse. He gets saved, right? Barnabas goes to Tarsus where Paul is, and he says, yo, I, I need your help. Antioch stuff is going crazy there. Church is exploding. I need your help to minister here. So Paul says, all right. So they go to Antioch for about a year, and they're ministering. And it's really awesome ministry. Great things are happening. And so in chapter 13, we actually had Paul and Barnabas in the church in Antioch being sent out for their first missionary journey. Okay, so they're sent out, and you can tell it's, there's great responses. There's also responses of resistance saying, like, we don't want you here. And there's also thousands, multitudes getting saved when they're preaching. So you have, like, success in ministry, and then they want to kill him, you know, so they're kind of bouncing around to all these various cities, and in chapter 14, we have them coming up from Cyprus, going from Antioch and Pisidia, uh, Pisidia down to Iconium, and so this is uh, the quick summary of Acts, chapter 14, now let's read through what they experienced in Iconium, uh, you can say it's probably unexpected that they, they did not expect these things to happen in here, so Let's read on verse 1. Now to Iconium, they entered together into a Jewish synagogue 
and spoke in such a great way that a number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time speaking boldly for the Lord who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Jews, uh, Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derba and the cities of Lycania and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking and Paul looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well. You remember Peter, right, in Solomon's portico? Same kind of scenario here. He sees him, faith to be made well. He says in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and he began walking. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted their voices, saying in Lycaninian, his unexpected uh, response, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifices to the crowd with the crowds. But the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it. They tore their garments. They rushed out to the crowd crying, men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you. We bring good news that you should turn from these vain things to serve God, to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. Verse 19, but the Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul, they dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. When the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and he went back into the city. That's some boldness right there. They just stoned you and he goes back into the city. On the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derba. When they came, when they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, returned to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. In the return trip home, they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. When they had spoken the word in Perga, they came down to Italia. And from there, they sailed back to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. So the first missionary journey for Paul and Barnabas come to a conclusion. This is about a two-year event, okay? Sometimes you're reading the book of Acts, you know, you read just boom, boom, event after event after event. This is two years of time, okay? This is an age without cell phones, instant communication, right? Just to communicate from one side of the empire to the other was a great effort. And so when they sent Paul off, you know, two years prior, they didn't have communication coming back to him. I don't know if they did or not, but it didn't appear they did, right? So you can only imagine when they see Paul come back, 
after getting stoned. Like, that verse is thrown out there kind of quickly. Just to give you a, not be too graphic here, but it still happens today in our world. I don't know if you know that. They dig a hole in the ground, they bury you from the waist up and throw a sheet over you and they surround you and they don't throw pebbles at you. They're throwing weighty rocks, okay? And they finish, they drug Paul out, left him for dead. You can imagine his body is awful beat up at this point. Imagine, he says elsewhere in his writings, I bear the scars and marks of our Lord Jesus. He has to have scars just all over the place here. And this is how they receive Paul in Antioch. You can imagine kind of the, the gasping of like, wow, like these guys have been through a lot. This is crazy. And so he, he shares with them the stories, and this is what he says. Verse 22. I'll read this one more time. He's, he's, he's telling the churches this. He's encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. So I was preparing for this, and that's the, ver- I was trying to praise, like, well, you know, there's so much in this, in this chapter, it's a whole chapter, like, where, you know, should I land? Verse 22 just kept sticking out to me, because I, find, I found myself at odds with really grappling, or understanding, relating to Paul's words. With great tribulations, you shall enter the kingdom of God. And I found myself thinking, I hear him, I see what happened to him. Is my life full of such trials, right, that he is talking about? I mean, he, he's talking with expectation towards this church, saying, these are new Christians, by the way. Like, not to scare these new Christians off or anything, but saying, hey, guys, I just got stoned. With many tribulations, you will enter this kingdom. So there you go. See you later. Like, this is Paul's message to these brand new Christians of less than two years of converts, Right? This is a one of expectation for these Christians. You're going to experience tribulation because of your love for Jesus. With great tribulation, you will enter the kingdom of God. And I found myself kind of at odds with this, thinking like, I can't really relate to this. I don't know if I actually understand what he's saying. How, how do I wrestle with this? And I was trying to think through why. What is the disconnect between in my life and, and in Paul's life? What is the disconnect? Should there be a disconnect? And I was wrestling with these questions. So, and, and this is where I, I landed at, as, as to, I think the biggest reason as to why we don't immediately relate to Paul's words. Um, in our country, all right, I don't care if you're in the bottom of the economic ladder, ladder or the very top, we live the most spoiled, wealthy, prosperous, comfortable, generally suffer-free life. In human history, no other civilization has compared to the comforts and the security and the peace and the prosperity that we have today. I mean, there's things like running water that we just simply don't even think about anymore, that we, we just take for granted. Hot showers, I mean, washing machines, refrigerators, you can go to a, you know, a, a grocery store and have 10,000 options for your dinner and you get to choose whatever you want. Like, we, we are so spoiled today, and we spend a lot of money on these comforts. And our technology, 
a lot of times maybe aimed for, you know, say human progress, if you will, but a lot of times our technologies aim for making stuff even more comfortable and even more convenient and even more nice. Like our entire economy is built on this. And the fact is, I'm not saying this is evil or bad and just bear with me here. The fact is, it's not really enough for us. We, we always want something more convenient, want to be more comfortable. This is how I know. In 1950, the average house was about 1,000 square feet. The average family had three or four children. Today, the average house is 2,300 square feet with half the amount of children. What is this communicating, those stats communicating? It's not really enough. We need more. We need more. I'm sure in another 50 years, you know, that stat may be even higher, right? Because we find ourselves not content with our comfortability, with all the blessings we have in this country. We're still not content. And I, I, I do have to say a soapbox thing about that, that family statistic really quick. Um, it does seem to be the trend that people want to have less kids these days, but more stuff. Um, and and ki- children are looked at as nuisances and inconveniences in your life. Our culture does not speak highly of children. They speak of them as little whiners. And I've seen Christians, you think, Christians believe, I don't know, believe, whatever. Christians think they have permission to complain about their children, all right? I've seen pastors from the pulpit complain about their children. Stop complaining about your children. Do you know why? Try to find me a verse in Scripture that has anything negative to say about a child. You know what Scripture says about children? Their blessings, their rewards, straight from God. You want to complain about the reward in your life of your children? You want to to do that? If you're around me and you complain about your kids, I want to smack you. You understand? And look, I know that I've done this. If I if I'm, have complained to my kids to you in this room, I'm not above that. I don't pretend like I'm above I'm sorry. I've been so deeply convicted about that. I don't want to catch you complaining about your kids. They're rewards. Accept your rewards with glad and grateful hearts. And if you're complaining about something with them, it only means that you have areas in your heart that you've got to grow in, all right, and be sanctified in and be more and more like Christ. Okay, soapbox over. Moving on. So as Christians, this is what we do. We, we have our amazing, just comfortable, affluent life. All, right? All of us do in this country. And this shapes our worldview. It shapes our understanding of the world. Okay? And then we're Christians. And this is what we do. We have our American way of life, our affluent life, is, is our first and primary way we understand life. And then we meet Jesus, and Jesus is kind of like tacked on, and there's a couple of results as, as to what happens when Jesus is kind of tacked on, okay? And we just kind of allow him to be an addition in our life, okay? This guy, his name was Christopher Smith. Um, about 10 or 12 years ago, he, 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 did, he was analyzing uh, spiritual trends in teenagers, I'm trying to figure out what do teenagers believe, ones that go to church and ones that are actively, you know, religious in nature. Like, what are their actual beliefs if you were to ask them? Like, what do you believe? Um, This is what he came out with. And this is not just for teenagers. This is, generally speaking, I think this could be the majority view, sadly enough, of Christians if we don't pay attention. Okay, he called it moralistic, therapeutic deism. All right, and there's about five things he says that characterizes this. Hear me out, listen to this. He said, moralistic therapeutic deism is this. It's belief that a God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth, okay? 
God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other, as taught in the Bible, and also by most world religions. The central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about yourself. God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem, and I made my own addition to his, or when you want to receive a blessing, right? Number five, good people go to heaven when they die. And so Jesus, this is kind of old as time, this one, right? He becomes the rewarder of our good moral life and that our comfortable existence will be sustained and increased through us being a good moral person. This is, this is the game we play with God, okay? We love the affluent life we have, and it's, you know, again, I'm not saying this is an evil life, okay, but we, we, we have what we have in this country, and we look at God as, as him wanting to dispense this. We say, God, if we're just more obedient, we're just more well-behaved Christians, maybe you'll give me more prosperity. Maybe I'll give you more security, more uh, of a life with no suffering, Right? Can I, I'll just do that if I'll obey you. Give me this. You remember Job? This is how I said as old as time, okay? When Job had all of his trials come to him, what was the counsel of his friends? Hey, man, what did you do wrong? Obviously something. Because if you were an obedient, you know, guy, you wouldn't have had all these trials come upon you. Surely, Job, what did you do? Come on, spit it out. You can tell us because your life is a wreck. Look at all these trials that's happened to you. What did you do wrong, Job? Don't we feel the same way, right? When, 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 when suffering hits your life, you're like, wait a minute, I thought God was a good God. I've been such a good person. I've been going to church and tithing, and I don't deserve this. What's going on? What happened? God, I thought you were good. You don't have a, we don't have a box built. And we're so used to comfortable living that when those things happen, we don't know what to do with it. We don't have a box for it. It comes almost out of left field, and we're stuck wrestling with our faith. Just Some people abandon God at these points. Some people completely walk away from the faith at these points because they simply don't understand how a good God could allow or bring about such horrific trials or suffering in somebody's life. Are you guys tracking with me here? So I want to give you um, um, something. Uh, I want to reemphasize this. The kind of life we, we've been given in America, okay, it's not, this is not evil, I'm not, this is not a message of like a, there was some book circulating a while back, it was kind of putting out like a poverty theology of like, it's best to be poor, so get rid of your stuff, and if you have stuff, then you're like, I'm not saying this, okay? It is a, it is a blessing, it is a gift from God that we have what we have in this country, and I'm recognizing this, okay? But here's how we are to understand what we have in this country. Imagine somebody giving you a handmade gift, all right? Like a handmade, just, you know, somebody whittled out. Some, is whittling a thing in New Jersey? Is that like a southern thing? I don't know. They whittled out something amazing. And they hand it to you, and you're like, sweet. And you just, like, turn your back, and you walk away from them. That person would be like, what in the world? Okay. No, you, you see this. You're like, you made this for me. Wow. I can't believe this. Your affection for this person rises up. Okay. That is how we are to view our blessed life in this country. It's like, wow, God, seriously? We, we ha- I don't, why, why do we have this here? I don't know. What a gift. Thank you. We have to look at the, the giver of our good gifts and not make our blessed, comfortable life here end in itself. You guys understand? So I want to look at a biblical, th- now it's out of the way, okay? I'm not preaching a, a poverty theology here. I want to look at verse 22 in Acts and look at the suffering he experienced. 
okay? Why he experienced it. Look at from Genesis to Revelation and give you guys a brief um, uh, biblical theological understanding of prosperity, comfort, you know, and also suffering and show you why suffering exists here. Not that I have all the answers here, but I'll give you a brief overview of scripture in terms of why it exists, okay? Um, I, I, I do, um, yeah, I'll, I'll say this now. Persecution, okay, that Paul experienced, before we get into this, I want you to understand the nature of, of persecution that we're talking about, the nature of suffering that we're talking about, okay? Um, I, this is what I'm, I'm not talking about, okay? I'm not talking about any kind of um, resistance you may receive in your life because of your moral, conservative, Republican values, okay? That I, I've seen way too many Christians convinced that if they can just convert somebody to believe in their conservative values and their, like, resistance against the progressive, ah, we're, you know, we're martyrs for, that's nothing to do with Jesus, guys, all right? So I want to be clear, when I'm talking about persecution that we may, or suffering that may come in our life because of our faith in Christ, I am not referring to your Republican conservative values and whatever kind of resistance you may get in your life because of that. Understood? Last preface. Now we get to get into Genesis. Good stuff. Garden of Eden, a perfect place. They had more food than they ever could have eaten, more water than they needed. There was gold in the Garden of Eden, the land of Favalia, I think they, they called it, right? Riches, food, water. God was with them, the giver of all this. God didn't need to give Adam and Eve all that stuff. They had it. What a blessing. They had him. They were with him. There was peace. It was wonderful until Adam and Eve wanted to try to do this thing on their own and then curse the fall came, okay? And when the fall came, God's message to the serpent and to Eve was this. The serpent deceived Eve, right, into eating the fruit and he said this, Eve, you're gonna have some offspring, you're gonna have children, but so will the serpent, all right? Between your children, okay, between the serpent's children, which is implied that Eve's children are going to be uh, God-fears, God-lovers, the ones that are the, the chosen line of God, okay? The serpent's children will be representative of children actually carrying out the curse in this world, okay? And the fallen nature, the evil. Okay, so he's saying there'll be two lines here in the world, two, two sets of people, if you will. There's gonna be enmity between them. You're going to be fighting, there's going to be war, it's not going to be pretty. One day the serpent is going to come and strike the heel of one of your children, but one day one of your children is going to crush his head. We look at that as a, the first prophecy towards the cross, right? That Christ crushed the head of the serpent with his victorious death on the cross, reversing the beginning of the, of the reversing of, of the fall and evil in this world. But it's prophesied from literally day one that there's going to be enmity for God's people. Because of the curse in this world has affected everything around us, there's going to now be enmity between God's people and the world. Genesis chapter 4, he knows what that story is about. Cain and Abel, what happens? You have a man who loves God, right? He's righteous before God because his faith is obvious and his actions, right? You have Cain who is greatly jealous of the favor that Abel apparently has from God or the faith that Abel has in God. And what is Cain's response? He kills Abel. Enmity. First children are killing each other. This is the enmity between God's people and between the world 
Okay? And I, I'm going to briefly tell you that God's people experience enmity on the regular, constantly, all the time. Okay, I came to Joseph, all right? Joseph, thrown into a pit, sold into slavery, thrown in the jail, mistreated constantly, right? Why, Joseph? Why? Why is this going on? You're, you're, you're an innocent, righteous man. Like, he, he lived a life of, of turmoil, right? 15 years, I think he went through that. Uh, we can skip over a lot. David, David's the anointed king, right? God says, here you go, David, uh, you're going to be ruler my, my, of Israel. For years, David was on the run for his very life, right? Saul was trying to kill him for, for many years. He had to go live in the desert and hide in caves just to have his life preserved. And he was desperately seeking after God during this time, right? A life of enmity. Hezekiah, right, king of Israel much later on. Israel surrounded. They had no bread in the city and stuff was looking incredibly dire, he had a lot of suffering in his life. Enmity was very real. Jeremiah, Amos, the prophets preaching to God's people, right? And the response, Jeremiah, thrown in prison, thrown in the cistern, almost starved to death. And then when Israel's exiled, where does Jeremiah go? He gets in exile too, alongside of the people he was preaching against, right? Amos also received persecution in his life. We can go on and on. Nehemiah, Esther, Job, I mean, Job's story is, is, is crazy, right? Daniel, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We, we can go on and on. Jesus, all right? Guys, I want you to hear something. We worship a guy who was murdered, brutally murdered, and he came back from the dead and said, go and tell people about me. I know I was just killed, but go out. What do we expect people to respond to us if they responded to Jesus that way, Okay. This is, again, we're looking back at Genesis, it's prophesied. Now one day we know, okay, I, I, I can't even continue to go on with, with, with James and the early church martyrs, and we have all the way up in church history just martyrs. Did you know the last year, even, some people are saying 90,000 Christians were martyred. Right now we're seeing the highest amount of church martyrs, Christian martyrs, is ever before in history today. Enmity is very alive and real in our world today very much alive and very much real, okay? The New Testament, okay, was very clear that this is going to be the case in the world that is primarily of the seed of the serpent, okay? I'm gonna read some verses to you now to show you that this is, this is uh, enmity because of your faith, right? And, and attacks that may happen in the likeness of suffering for the Christian, it looks like according to scripture, that this is an expectation for the Christian. This is an expectation for the church. John chapter 15, verse 20, Jesus said this. Remember the word that I gave to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. Right? First Peter um, chapter 5, he says, Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered for a while, the God of grace, who has called you to eternal glory in Christ, will restore and confirm and strengthen you. Matthew chapter 10, this is Jesus talking to his disciples. I'm sending you out in the midst of sheep, sheep in the midst of wolves. It says, beware of men, they'll deliver you over to courts and flog you and they'll be dragged before governors. When they deliver you over, he uses language, this unconditional kind of language. So this is going to happen to you, 
All right? 2 Timothy, you know what Paul said? All who live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. All who live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. This is just a list of all the stuff that Paul went through in his life. All right? Paul said this in his ministries. He had countless imprisonments, countless beatings, often near death, five times received 40 lashes, less one, beaten with rods. He was stones, we just read about. Second Corinthians chapter 11, he says this, three times shipwrecked, night and day adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from our own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers and toil and hardship through many a sleepless nights and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. And I want you to listen to this list of our faith heroes in chapter 11 in Hebrews, okay? He says this, he, he, that chapter 11 is telling us about these wonderful men and women of faith who just have done amazing things for the kingdom. And, and listen to this, he says, he lists all these people, Moses and Abraham and et cetera, and he says, For time would fail me to tell you of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and David and Samuel and all the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, who were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. And we say, yeah, that sounds awesome. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release. They might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, sawn in two, were killed with a sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and in caves of the earth. Acts 14, 22, what was Paul's message? Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. God. One day when Christ returns, there's no more enmity in this world. All things will be made new. Peace will be here. He will be our son. He will be our God. We'll be with him forever. In Revelation 21, 22 says, no more crying or pain or tears or mourning. No more evil in this world. No more death. No more suffering. We'll have all the food and the abundance that we can possibly have. All the water that we possibly could need. We'll have the city of Jerusalem comes down, has is gold and filled with jewels, and we'll be with him forever and ever in the fullness of joy, his right hand or pleasures forevermore. That's what we look forward to, okay? We have to face the reality of all these verses we just read. What do we do with this stuff, right? The gospel, I want you to understand this. It has actually set in motion in our lives more enmity in this world. And I want, you, I want you to think through this, okay? For Jesus to have done what he did on the cross to reverse the effects of the fall, it brought him incredible pain, incredible suffering, incredible um, turmoil. Uh, it was, I don't know what, the word hard and difficult is, is awful minor, if he grants us the spirit to begin reversing the effects of the fall in our own hearts, we can expect there to be some trials that come into our life. We can expect there to be attacks that come into our life. We can expect those in, in countries and societies and cultures without the spirit guiding them to be an enmity against us. Does this make sense? The Bible has prophesied this. Church history has shown this. Jesus' life has shown this. The life of his apostles, all of them, 11 out of 12, were martyred. And John, who wasn't martyred, he almost was. He was boiled alive. Boiled 
alive and sent into exile. This has been the story of the church, okay? And so as we are in, um, uh, Jesus, he, he, he said this very clearly, and this may kind of, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to blow up some of your, if you have any kind of preconceived boxes or notions here, like I want to kind of rock them a little bit. Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 10, you know what he says? Do not think I have come to bring peace to the earth. It's like, what? What man? Christmas, come on. Peace to the earth, mercy, my God. Like, what are you talking about? Listen, I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against his mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. I just learned this this week. This is a direct quote from an Old Testament book called Micah in the last chapter. Micah said these exact words, mother against father and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. In the context of Micah, he was saying, this country is pretty jacked up. I'm living in Israel. The sin is rampant. Evil is alive and well here. I'm seeing families like attack each other. Fathers are against mothers. And fa- I'm seeing this. This is the reality in, in, this, in this country. This is, it's, it's, we're in bad shape here. And Jesus, to his disciples, saying, great, now you have the keys of the kingdom. Now you know the truth. Now you have me. And in your own families, the curse is going to be actually amplified. Your faith may cause, in your own family, it may turn a mother against a daughter. It may turn a father against their son, a mother-in-law against their daughter. Some of you in this room are shaking their heads like, yeah, I know what you're talking about. Okay? And so I want to go back to my question, okay? Is this. In our, in our comfortable life we have in America, which, again, I'm not, this is not an evil thing that we have, we are so accustomed to a life of, 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 of ultimately non-suffering. I mean, we do suffer. We have seasons of suffering. And some people have far more daily suffering than others. But generally speaking, okay, in our country, we do have a life at ease, great luxuries at our fingertips. It is very easy to choose our comforts and the things that feel good, okay? And we can turn Jesus into this feel-good God that says, you know, if you'll, I, I'm here because I want to feel better, you know, in my life. I don't want to feel bad. So Jesus, uh, morally, you know, I, I want to have some behavior modification. Jesus be my, my ultimate, you know, uh, therapist here and help me feel better. I'll go do good deeds. And then I want that kind of relationship with you, Jesus. Like, that's what I want. That's, that's, that's where we can naturally gravitate towards, okay? And then Jesus says, I, I, I actually have more in mind for you. Um, I want you to do something difficult and, and actually hard for me in your life. Um, it may actually cause you to, re, to, to, to let go of some of your comforts in life and actually sacrifice something for me. Um, I want you to do that. And we're trained to say, uh, I don't know. I'll go back to my Bible studies and my Christian retreats and I'll, I'll kind of want to hide from the hard stuff. Like, I don't know, Jesus. I don't know. And if there's elements that uh, in our culture that seeps into our heart that enables us to, to have to make a choice to say, I can either compromise my faith and have an easier life or start rejecting the things that are coming my way and say, no, for the sake of Christ, I, re- I reject these things. You may find yourself getting some resistance peoples that have certain job occupations right now in our country they're being faced with this doctors and such in our transgender world when who knows what they'll be forced to say yes or no to right they're facing this kind of persecution to say you know what no 
I'm not going to do that. They could lose their job. They could lose their license. So we're seeing some of this in reality in our own very country today. So I'm, I'm calling us to say, I, 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 I want a couple of things from you guys, hopefully. Um, is number one, if, if, if we only expect comfortable blessings from God as if he is um, our obedience uh, kind of enchains him to just give us um, good gifts and comfortable living back and say, yeah, here's more blessings, here's more money, here's, here's more ease and security because you're a nice, good Christian. Like if we play that game with him, okay, I want to say that we're in danger of him saying, I, I, I need to um, maybe rock your world a bit, <laughs> okay? Um, I need something, you need something to kind of blow up right now in your life for you to see that it's not about this stuff. These are gifts. It's about me. My, my question I want to ask you, oh, I want to say this, is Jesus has full authority over you, okay, over your life to tell you what to do and to call you to do something, and he is your all in all, supposed to be our all in all, and to where if he were to call you to say, I need you to pick up and I need you to move here, go do this, share the gospel with your neighbor, uh, whatever it may be that may be uncomfortable, you are to say, I, 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 okay, I'm, I'm, I'm there, Jesus. I, I want to listen to your spirit, and I, I'm, I'm there. I need you to let go of your money. Stop being stingy. Your money is not your God. Let go. You say, all right, you're right. It's not my God. There's some hurting brothers and sisters that need help over here. I, I want to go help them out. Thank you. We're called to this. Our, our, our comfort bubble, we, we can't cling to it as if it's our salvation. It's not. He has authority over that. Um, as we move to application, I want to say a couple of things. Uh, is this. It can be dramatically unhelpful, all right, um, when suffering enters, okay, your life. And it, it, I, I do believe, I had a professor once who said, if, if there's a Christian who is completely sold out to his Christ, he will not be left without scars, right? So he will not be left without scars. And this man had his bucket of scars, if you will. He had his stories. He said, he will not be left without scars. The enemy will be against you, okay? And God himself will call you to sacrifice something. And both will be painful. Do you understand? Because our heart, we're going to want to fight against both and compromise to one, Okay? It is true that in the light of eternity, all right, in the new heavens and new earth, but Jesus there, there'll be no more pain, no more suffering, right? Paul can look at the future and say, you know, yes, in light of this momentary affliction, um, I can face whatever's happening today because of the glory that says to be revealed. Um, it's also true, one of Christian, you know, our favorite Bible verses, God works all things together for the good of good, you know, who love him. That's true. All things do work together for good, Okay. But I, I want to make sure I'm not doing something here. I want to downplay suffering as if like, hey, put your pants on, face it, it's okay. You know, God has good in mind for this. Let's go on. You know, you need to learn to suffer better as a Christian. And, you know, like, I don't want to say that. And this is why. I don't know why God brings about the trials he does. Paul, okay, in, in one of the famous passages he wrote in 2 Corinthians 4, he says, um, in our trials and our sufferings, one of the things he says is, we're perplexed. In other words, we look at it with a question mark and scratch on your head like, seriously, God? You let that happen? You let this happen? Right? 
I look at Acts 12 when, when James, right, is, is killed and Peter gets arrested, but Peter's freed. The angel frees Peter. It's like, what? Why didn't the angel free James too? Like, I don't know. We're perplexed by those things, right? But what does Paul say? But we're not in despair, right? Even though we don't understand. Look, I, we all have our stories of suffering, okay? Between James and Micah, we had a miscarriage, and it wasn't just a miscarriage we found. There was a possible cancerous you know, tum- a tumor growing, right? So we've had our own shares of just like question marks. Like we, right before that happened, we were called, we, we felt like calling in our life to have a bunch of kids, and I'll share more maybe later about why that came about, how that came about. And our first experience after really accepting is like, yeah, we want to have a bunch of kids. Was that? It was kind of scary. For six months, we had to just go back to the doctor and hope cancer didn't show up in the test results, all right? And you have your stories of suffering that's probably far greater, and we all go through this stuff. I'm not here to say, like, oh, well, come on, guys, you know, put your pants on and get, like, face it and be happy and smile. Like, it is true that he will bring good about these things, but it's okay to be perplexed by them. It's okay to say, I don't know why this is here. I don't get it. But even though we don't understand, even though we don't get it, it should not stop us from moving forward in life with our faith and our good God and his gospel in Jesus Christ to say one day this broken, messed up world will be reversed and what I'm experiencing now will not be the case for a million years. And so right now I get to look at it in my short glimpse, little mist of a life and say I can face this now knowing that one day this stuff will be wiped away and reversed and gone from this world forever and never. I don't want to make light of suffering, but I hope in light of eternity, in light of the true result of the gospel, that we know that we can face whatever adversity that comes. We can handle whatever Christ were to call us to do to sacrifice for him for the sake of his kingdom. We can do it by the help and power of his spirit. We can, we can face what may come our way. So as we close a couple of questions for you, um, what if, what is What if Jesus called you to do something uncomfortable and sacrificial for his kingdom? Would you be ready to give up things like your comfortability, your wealth, etc., for the sake of his kingdom? Or would you be willing to use what you have with less stingy grip and to say, what I have can be shared with others because they need help? All these things, are you willing to do so for the sake of his kingdom? If not, what is keeping you? Number two. Is there any compromise in your life that you've allowed in in order to make the reality of Jesus and his call and his full authority on your life an easier pill to swallow? Is there any compromise in your life? Is there any sin in your life you're just like, I kind of like this sin, so I'm just going to keep doing this, even though clearly I know Jesus said don't do it, but I, I'm just going to, I like it too much. And is there any compromise in your life at all where Christ is not Lord over all of your life? Number three, are you theologically and spiritually prepared for suffering? Because if, if, if we don't look at the, the message of, of Paul in, in 1422 here, if we don't look at these realities and we want to buy into this moralistic therapeutic deism that you know, life is all in good and roses, okay, when suffering hits, you will not be ready for it. You will look at God and say, how could you, God? I thought you were a good God. Are you ready for suffering? I'm telling you, it's going to come. Tragedy will come at some part in your life. And if you're living your, life, your faith out to the fullness, you may get resistance. You may get family members turning on you. Are you ready to face these things? Are you ready to face them? 
Jacob, you know what? He wrestled with God all night wanting a blessing, right? You know what God knew in his providence that Jacob needed? He needed a new name, a new identity, which we all need, which we have in Christ. But then the angel, after wrestling all night, just touched his hip, and what happened? He was crippled. He's like, there you go, Jacob. You have a new identity, but don't forget that I have authority over your life. We don't know what will be coming in our life. Are you ready for what may come? Final, if there's anything else I want you to get, what do you expect to get out of knowing Jesus? What do you expect to receive out of your relationship with Jesus? And here's the answer. If there's anything but Jesus, okay, if there's anything but Jesus, then you're going to have a hard time facing tomorrow than what may come. If it's anything other than Jesus. Again, we may not understand his ways. We may not understand what he does and why he does it. We may not, okay? But to look at him and say, in my relationship with you, I get you. And that's all that matters. If I have plenty or I have little, it doesn't matter. I have Jesus. If I have a life of ease, some people just have a life, there's not a lot of, maybe a lot of suffering, you know, whatever your lot is in life, you can face it because you have Jesus. If you, if you say, well, between me and Jesus, I, I'm expecting to get this or expecting him to do this, or that, you're wrong. You get Jesus, and that's all you get. He's enough. He's enough. So let me pray, and we can, we can stop. Um, Jesus, I, I, I pray that you would truly be enough, Lord. Um, we thank you for the testimony of all the saints that surround us, Lord, like Paul, Lord, eventually lost his head for the sake of the gospel, like our brothers and sisters all around the world who just by being Christian, their lives are in danger, Lord. I just pray, Lord, that we would not be, um, uh, we would not look at just our, our, our blessed, affluent uh, state in America as ends in itself, Lord, but we would be willing to pull the, our heartstrings away from them and fully on you, Lord, that whatever you may ask of us or, or bring our way or whatever attacks from Satan may come into our life, Lord, that we would be ready for it, we'd be prepared for it, Lord, that from you being our all in all. I thank you that we don't have to understand your ways. I thank you that you are so much bigger than our minds could actually ever wrap up be wrapped around. Give us the faith, Lord, to trust you. It never makes the suffering when it comes easier. But just give us faith to trust you, even if we don't understand why, because you are enough. We pray this in your name. Amen.